listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. In recent years, public attention has been drawn to the plight of adults, terminally ill but mentally competent, who have wanted to die but been unable to do so in Britain because the current laws would make anyone who helped them liable to criminal prosecution. In this podcast, I will be speaking to three different people with particular knowledge and experience of the issues raised by this lack of provision for assisted dying in the UK. Lloyd Riley is Policy and Research Manager at Dignity in Dying, a not-for-profit organisation that campaigns for the legalisation of assisted dying in the UK. Lloyd has recently co-authored a book, Last Rights, The Case for Assisted Dying, which explores the inadequacies of the current legislation and makes the case for change. Mick Murray, who is also a member of Dignity in Dying, had a distressing first-hand experience of the weaknesses of the current law when two of his close friends became terminally ill and were refused the assistance that they sought in this country to enable them to die. I am then joined by Dr Anthony Lempert, who is a GP and chairs the NSS Medical Forum, to discuss his own experience of religious influence on the assisted dying debate and the arguments for and against changing the law. This podcast contains material that some may find distressing. I'm joined now by Lloyd Riley and Mick Murray from Dignity in Dying. Lloyd, Mick, hello. Would you like to start by introducing yourselves and your organisation? Thanks for having us, Emma. Uh, My name's Lloyd Riley. I'm the Policy and Research Manager at Dignity in Dying. I'm also the co-author of a new book on this issue, Last Rights, The Case for Assisted Dying. Oh, hello. Um, And thank you for having invited me. Uh, And my name is Mick Murray and um, I'm retired. I'm I'm a member of Dignity in Dying, but not an office holder. And I've been actively involved in it for a number of years now. Great. Thanks both. So, Lloyd, let's start with you as you're an officer of Dignity in Dying. What is the current state of the law or the laws in different parts of the UK about people who choose to take their own life? So suicide in this country isn't illegal. Um, That changed when the Suicide Act 1961 came into force in England and Wales. Uh, But at the same time, that piece of legislation did criminalise any assistance of people to end their own life, which is where the problems that we'll we'll come on to talk about uh, originated. Scotland and Northern Ireland have similar pieces of legislation. So essentially, across the UK, there is a ban on assisted dying, compassionate assistance to help dying people um, escape a period of suffering. And what are the origins of of this law? So the Suicide Act um, obviously stopped suicide from being illegal, as it had been before, as as a matter of, I guess, Christian doctrine. But what are the reasons why um, in this country assisted dying is currently illegal and, and the principles behind it? So as you say, the the Suicide Act, I mean, it really was to combat um, religious stigma around suicide that was having a a negative impact on on the bereavement of families. Um, I think that was a good thing. In terms of criminalising assistance, um, I'm I'm sure the intention was protection, but it dates back to 1961. It is fundamentally outdated now and not really fit for the 20th century, let alone the 21st century. Um, So we've seen huge developments in that time, not just in terms of freedoms and autonomy being embedded in in wider society, but when it comes to end-of-life care specifically, 
we have a much more person-centered focus now, um, and that's completely at odds with this law, which denies dying people uh, a say over how their lives end. So basically, the law has not been updated to reflect the current state of society. Absolutely. There, there was a, uh, a slight update uh, in terms of the guidance that's been provided to prosecutors around this issue. Um, so when Debbie Purdy won her case, uh, the DPP issued new guidance, which um, made prosecution for people who are acting compassionately less likely. Uh, that didn't fix the law by any means. Uh, if anything, I think it highlighted how uh, how flawed the actual law is and how indefensible uh, the outright ban on assisted dying is. And Lloyd, just um, remind listeners, when was the Debbie Purdy case? So the DPP's guidelines came into force in 2009. Um, so it's a fairly recent update. Um, but as I say, hasn't hasn't fixed the laws by any means. In terms of the problems with the current law, let's have a look at its practical effects on people. Mick, you've had experience of this through two of your friends. Would you like to tell listeners what um, your experience has been of the problems in the UK with the current law? My experience with the law is it's a complete mess. Um, It's applied arbitrarily, randomly, and I had to deal with this from the death of my two friends separately in 2014 and 15 both of whom had terminal illnesses and were beyond palliative care, and well, both of whom wanted to die at home, you know, surrounded by friends and family, but that simply wasn't an option. And therefore they were forced to go to Dignitas. So I helped them to arrange on both occasions to go there. Uh, we made no secret of what we were doing, and it was covered uh, eventually on, on the day itself that my friend died in 2015 by a news reporter from The Sun and by ITV News, who broadcast a whole wide long interview. So there, were no, there was no secret about this. And when we came back after my friends had died on each occasion, we weren't, weren't contacted by the police or any enforcement officers. However, that isn't the case with other people who subsequently were hounded or arrested or uh, put under all kinds of interrogation, left wandering for months and months and months whether their case was going to be taken up or, and in some cases, actually charged um, for uh, their so-called crimes in acting compassionately. So the law is basically all over the place. I was lucky not to have been touched by it. Um, but there's no saying this is sort of like Russian roulette, I have to say, the way it's applied. Absolutely. Um, Mick, this is, of course, a very sensitive topic, um, but if you wouldn't just mind um, going into a little bit more detail for your um, for the listeners. Um, I understand, so your, your friend's Anne Hall, um, she was suffering from supranuclear palsy, I understand, and, and Bob Cole, her husband, was suffering from mesothelioma. So did they try to get a remedy in this country before they went abroad? Uh, yes, uh, firstly, there's no remedy at all for progressive supranuclear palsy, and it's beyond palliative care. Uh, the risk, as, as it uh, gets worse and worse, and in Annie's case, um, it, it was getting really serious. She couldn't stand up. She had to be fed 24-hour care for. She was still mentally alert, but she was desperate to put an end to it before. The com- most common cause of death, I think, is from choking on your own tongue because you can't control it. So she was desperate to not to have to go through that complete loss of dignity in, as she died. And my friend Bob, 
Uh, he'd worked as an apprentice joiner. His first job at the age of 15 was sawing up asbestos, and asbestos sits in your lungs for 50 years before it explodes into mesothelioma. And he was in an absolutely desperate, desperate state. Um, morphine patches, swigging morphine, morphine pills by the dozen uh, that actually knocked him out, and then the pain just returned till he was screaming, and there was nothing that could be done for him. And in the end, he resolved to go to Dignitas as his wife had done um, the year before and uh, to finish his life. Um, it was just awful. He was like a brother to me. He was only two days uh, younger than me um, and he always used to call me dad. So to go with my best friend for over sort of 45 years and to, to witness this was, was terrifying. Like, like this is not unique to me, I have to say. This is common, a common feature of all of those family members and those nearest and dearest to people who are suffering chronically at the end of life. Obviously an extremely distressing experience for you, Mick. Uh, what, what did Anne and, and Bob try to do? How did they try to get assisted dying in this country and, and what, how was it rejected? Well, um, there have been a number of cases of people who had tried to do things, uh, but had, and th their worry was not that they were going to die. Their worry was that the people who were going to be with them as they died, say at a party where they then retired to a room and took, would actually be risk prosecution for aiding and abetting a suicide. As Lloyd's just pointed out, that it's the aid, it's the aiding and abetting a suicide, which is the criminal act, carries a 14-year prison sentence at a maximum. So they had they they all their only option to open to them was to go somewhere to a jurisdiction to export their dying to another country where they could be with friends. Uh, and make it a, a positive act, which wasn't criminal in the eyes of, in, in this case, of Switzerland. Um, so that, that's the dilemma that people face and that they face themselves in making this choice. And going to Switzerland, I imagine that can't have been an easy or a cheap process. It's, it's um, an extremely complicated process. The amount of massive amount of evidence you have to produce for the Swiss um, uh, agency and for the Swiss authorities um, at the booking and it's all expensive and the cost of getting to Switzerland and of living you have to spend a few days there while doctors see you is puts it beyond the reach of an awful lot of people in Britain. That's that's totally an understandable um, Mick. You also mentioned that although um, you and your friends who helped Anne and Bob were not pursued afterwards, that some people who've um, had recourse to Dignitas in Switzerland, their relatives who helped them out, have been later pursued. For example, there was a, a, a woman in uh, South Wales who was dying um, and wanted to raise the money for, and her daughters wanted to hold a party to raise some money to enable her to go to Switzerland. And they were... Um, interviewed by the police and told that they could, couldn't do that. So um, there was a case in Chester, uh, I know, of a, a man who told his doctor he was going, the doctor had informed the police, and in his, he wasn't at home, but the police had actually come around and kicked his door in um, and later arrested and questioned him um, before he went. So 
I think the point I'm trying to make is that other people have been interviewed or left hanging, uh, not knowing whether they would be prosecuted or not. Uh, and there was a, a terrible case recently of Jeff Whaley and his wife Anne, where the, the police intervened and left a, a case open for some while before it was eventually dismissed around whether she'd acted in a compassionate way or not. It's a muddle. The whole thing is a complete muddle. And end of life shouldn't be such a mess for people, especially for the for the people who are dying and for the people who, who love them dearly. Sounds like a, a really a hum, inhumane situation that we've got in the law at the moment. And talking about the fact that it, it feels inhumane, these sorts of cases, what, what are the principles, what, what should the moral basis be for governing the way our society approaches death now in the 21st century with science um, and society being the way they are. Lloyd, um, you wrote a book about this, which was published in June, which was Last Rights, The Case for Assisted Dying. What do you think the moral basis should be um, for um, the way we approach assisted dying? Well, I think it's clear, as Mick has, has just movingly highlighted, that the, the status quo, the current system in the UK, is a complete mess. Um, and I think when it comes to end-of-life care, the, the culture that we have is still predicated on doctor knows best uh, paternalism, essentially. Uh, and, and as we argue in Last Rites, we need to reform that system. We need to make sure that the wishes of the individual who is dying uh, are paramount and that their voices are brought into the center of this debate. And in terms of other principles, you know, we need to look at justice and equality. Um, not everyone can afford to go to Dignitas. As, as Mick said, it's incredibly bureaucratic process, which you know is justified as we'll come on to, to make sure the safeguards are there. But it's difficult to do that um, and to access that, that death in Switzerland. Not everybody can travel and is physically capable of making that journey. When we were writing the book, I spoke to a woman called uh, Amanda, and, and she asked me quite bluntly, why is it acceptable that we force dying people to starve and dehydrate themselves to death? She asked me that because that's exactly what her dad had done and that she'd witnessed um, her dad do. He was a professor in pain management, an incredibly eminent uh, healthcare professional. He was dying in the end stages of Parkinson's disease. Uh, and he, he knew that that was the only way that he could control uh, his death in the, his final weeks. Amanda said that over the two weeks it, that it took to die when he was refusing food and water, she went to visit him, found him walking up and down the corridors of where he was being cared for with a Zimmer frame. She asked what he was doing and he said he was trying to burn extra calories to accelerate the process. Now, I don't, I don't know how anyone can defend a system that forces people into those situations that completely abandons people like Bob and Annie and forces them to seek a peaceful death overseas. So I think we really do need quite a widespread overhaul and a reform of the, the existing culture around end-of-life care. Mick, do you have anything to add to that? You know, life, life is about life should be celebrated, but we need to get to the point where we actually celebrate and take death as part of life. Uh, and treat it positively. And I think that comes out absolutely wonderfully in the book that's just been published last right. And for anyone who hasn't read it, I think they need to. Thank you, Mick. Now let's talk about specifically, given that this, the current situation is so utterly inhumane and just a complete mess, as you both have been saying, how are we going to reform it? How should this country 
um, reform the situation. Dignity in Dying, your organization, advocates the legalization of assisted dying. Could you explain what this means and how you would see assisted dying being implemented in practice? Yeah, so we want to make sure that, that dying people aren't abandoned, that they have the option not to suffer against their wishes, so that they have the option to die uh, in this country at home, surrounded by their friends, family members. I mentioned uh, Amanda and, and her dad. She, she said that his wish was to for his family members to have a glass of champagne while he delivered his final words of wisdom. Um and I know that, that, you know, people like Bob are able to do that, but they shouldn't have had to travel to Switzerland in order to, to have that kind of death. So we want legislation in this country, we want to change the law. Uh, an assisted dying law, it would give dying adults who have mental capacity the option of requesting an assisted death. So essentially um, a dose of medication that can be prescribed uh, that would allow them to end their lives and the manner and the timing of their choosing. Uh, this would be much more transparent than the current law. There'd be much more safeguards. Uh, they would all be upfront safeguards. Mick talked about police investigations after the fact. They don't protect people, but the safeguards of an assisted dying law uh, would. Uh, and it would ensure that you know people like Mick aren't at risk of prosecution by trying to support their friends to have uh, a peaceful death. It would mean that people aren't forced to, to take matters into their own hands or, or have to worry about doing that. Uh, for the vast majority of people, it would act as an insurance policy. They'd know that they wouldn't be forced to suffer against their wishes uh, if, if they were in that situation. We know and we make a clear case in the book that end-of-life care in this country is of a high quality and it should be better. It should have more funding. Uh, but even the very best end-of-life care can't guarantee people a peaceful death. There need to be further options. Um, what about people who are mentally incapacitated? Because you said that you're specifically focusing on adults who have the mental capacity to choose um, to die. Um, but what about the case of people, say, who have been in a long-term coma? Is there a solution for them? So assisted dying legislation for us, a key safeguard is mental capacity for, because this is all about autonomy and people being able to make choices for themselves. So in terms of assisted dying, that's that's crucial for us. Uh, we also have a sister organization called Compassion in Dying, which um, is doing great work encouraging and supporting people to plan ahead under the current law. Um, so it, people have the legal right to refuse treatment and they can document their wishes in an advanced decision, also known as a living will, um, so that if someone were to find themselves in those kind of circumstances you mentioned, like a coma, uh, then they would have some control over the decisions that were made about their care. And people can also appoint somebody else that they trust to make those decisions to with a, a power of attorney. Um, so those things are really important. And I think, you know, these these issues aren't unrelated. I think this is all about a, a culture uh, of end-of-life care where people are encouraged to think about these issues. Now, there are a few countries in the Western world where assisted dying is already legal or at least decriminalised. Um, Mick mentioned Switzerland where it's decriminalised. It's actually legal in Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Oregon in the US. What is the practical procedure for assisted dying in those countries and how well has it worked so far? Um, the the practical procedure in Switzerland is that you enrol with Dignitas from Britain, you become a member, 
you write then a CV to them of your illness and if they agree that it looks as though um, they will take you on board for an assisted dying, they then set in hand a whole number of inquiries you have, that you have to make, uh, which include your full medical records, proof of address, dental records for identity, and so on and so on and so on, a host of stuff. Uh, by the way, um, assembling some of that is not easy because doctors and once soon as they know this is for Switzerland are thrown into something what they call an ethical dilemma around are they actually supporting um, or helping to support uh, an assisted as uh, suicide so it's not universal practice from doctors in in how in providing records for example so and then you're again going to a uh, conversation with Dignitas when you've got this far and they agree that they can offer you a date and you then go, you accept that, you go to Switzerland and then you have to be seen on two separate days by a doctor who um, quizzes you without anybody else there as to whether you, this is a definite decision which is, makes an assessment to your mental competence makes an assessment of whether they feel you're being pressured into this or not and in the end if they're satisfied the doctor then they can actually write the prescription for the terminal drug to be granted to Dignitas and you then go then on the day three to the uh, place where you're going to die um, and you're, you self-administer the drug which is really important this is not euthanasia the doctors are not involved in giving you a terminal injection as they are, by the way, in some other countries within Europe. So there are different practices, but Swiss is self would be self self administered, and I think that's the model that's the model which we're advocating for Britain as well, by the way, or for England and Wales. Is that difficult? I mean, what if someone is paralysed, but they they have full mental capacity? Uh, if someone's paralysed, uh, rather than there are two ways that I know that you could take the drug. One would be. Uh, you ask to swallow it, but in the case where swallowing is extremely difficult, they actually put, and this happened with Annie, they put a cannula into her arm and she just simply uh, pressed a button. Um, now, if, if you're severely disabled and can't move, I'm not sure that you would be able to meet the self-administered or whether there is a technique, I simply don't know. Yeah, we do know that there are... Um you know, different devices that can be set up so that people can uh, take the final act themselves to trigger uh, uh, a syringe driver, as, as Mick mentioned. I think the other thing to say is that we know from the experiences of people who access assisted dying in these jurisdictions is that they are wanting to avoid the final weeks of their illness and would uh, be more likely to, to make use of this option before they got to that point where they physically weren't able to have an assisted death. Um, so, for example, motor neurone disease is a, a neurological condition which leads to uh, people be becoming physically less able to, to move and ultimately can lead to paralysis. Uh, in Oregon, people with motor neurone disease, or ALS as it's called in America, um, do access the law, uh, but they tend to do so before they reach that point. Right. So it's all about giving people a chance to plan ahead. 
Exactly. Yeah. Once that's op- that option is on the table, then it gives people the chance to to think through what they would like for themselves. Mick, so your experience of of Switzerland with your two dear friends, um, how well do you think that their procedures work? Would you want the same thing um, in this country? Well, I think um, the safeguards which are being advocated here by Dignity and Dying are actually, if anything, much stronger than those in Switzerland. So, for example, there would be uh, um, a high court judge uh, or judge-led decision as to, to ensure that you weren't being pressured into making this choice. Uh, there would have to be two doctors who agreed that you were um, uh, in, in within six months of dying. There would have to be doctors, not the same doctors maybe, but separately, who would have to say uh, that you were compost mentis. So, in fact, the proposal here is more um, watertight, it seems to me, even than the one in Switzerland. Uh, and that's pretty good, I would say. I would. I, I came away feeling very confident about that, and I would certainly feel confident about the procedures. And I can't think of anything that could be added to these kinds of procedures to make it more secure for people, particularly those who are uh, elderly or vulnerable or what have you. So, Lloyd, could you just maybe add, add to Mick's point about um, how and why your safeguards would be put, implemented? Well, obviously, safeguards against abuse are crucial. Um, doctors would assess someone's capacity and whether they are being coerced. There'd be the option of speaking to um, a psychiatrist or psychologist, counsellor uh, for mental health support if that was felt necessary. And it's important as well to note that these are safeguards that exist under the current law. Um, so I mentioned uh, Amanda's dad earlier, you know, that his care team, he, it's a legal choice to refuse food, food and water, but his care team had to assess whether he was being coerced or pressured into that decision. So this wouldn't be a radical step into the dark for healthcare professionals. They're used to making these assessments on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I think it's an interesting point around family members because I think it sheds light on... Uh, a battle that we have to take part in as campaigners that the case for assisted dying is based on evidence of the failures of the current law in this country which you know Mick has first-hand experience of and evidence of the safe practice of a compassionate alternative that is working around the world the case against assisted dying relies on fear and speculation and hypothetical arguments um, which just aren't backed up by the evidence. I, I had an exchange on Twitter with a um, a quite high profile end of life care academic who tweeted something about an association between assisted dying leading to an increase in, in suicide rates. Uh, and there's not a shred of evidence for that. Uh, in fact, any studies that have set out to prove that have actually found the opposite. Um, but when I pointed this out, there was no remorse about um, the fact that they were spreading misinformation. These tactics shouldn't have any place whatsoever in debates about what healthcare options should be available to dying people. Um, so I think the, the point about safeguards and the objections that are often put forward uh, really does need to be examined and people need to realise that we have evidence to back up our case, but there's not the evidence to back up um, these objections that are being put forward. Could I, could I add to that? Um... Because I learned today from The Independent, uh, today is um, end of September, 
that the Pope has reaffirmed uh, the Catholic Church's uh, position on assisted suicide, which he is now, uh, quote, intrinsically evil, end quote, and those who participate in it are guilty of homicide. So I learned today that actually I'm guilty, not just intrinsically evil, but I'm also guilty of homicide. And this is the kind of, um, uh, if you like, scaremongering um, or, or pressure which is brought to bear uh, through vested interests um, who actually often um, disguise who they are and where they're coming from. Uh, and the second thing I wanted to say is where there are states which have one form or another of assisted dying in place, there has not been a mass thing to, to show that it's led to all the kinds of things which um, Lloyd has just refuted, you know, the, the, the scaremongering that's gone on in all of these countries, however much they differ, their systems have worked and seem to be fairly watertight in terms of abuse and so on. And so I think that's really, really important because the opposition, the people that, who are opposing this, haven't gone away in those countries. And if they could find a single way of, of um, reverting to uh, previous legislation, they would, but so far they've not been able to. I think that's really important. Yeah, so basically you're saying that the the positions that opponents are taking are, are based on lack of knowledge, based on fear, and often based on religious motives, as you mentioned, the Pope. Um, and that moves on to my next question, which is that it's not only Catholics, but I think many religious organisations would argue that assisted dying is a threat to their religious freedom or that it's wrong for um, their a religious basis. Lloyd, what is your response to that? So most people support, uh, most religious people uh, or people who identify as religious do support assisted dying and our campaign. So I think we need to um, draw a distinction between the vast majority of religious people and the organisations that represent them. Our legislation does include a conscientious objection clause. So any healthcare professional that did have a religious objection wouldn't need to be involved in this if they didn't want to. Of course, anybody who personally disagrees with assisted dying doesn't have to have an assisted death. This wouldn't affect them in any way. Um, but as Mix just said, you know, the Vatican came out and said this practice is intrinsically evil. I think I think the minority of religious people that oppose this already have very powerful people speaking up for them. In terms of freedom, I'm I'm, I'm more concerned about the freedom of dying people in this country who are forced into circumstances where they are going to suffer against their wishes simply because people are willing to imp impose their belief on them. Um, so that that's where I think freedom plays a role in the debate. What other religious organisations have made public statements in opposition to assisted dying? So the last the last time we had uh, legislation in Parliament, the Archbishop of Canterbury did uh, make a, a public intervention um, and and warned MPs not not to change the law. Again, I think the arguments that he put forward were based on scaremongering. Um, I would have liked to have seen if. Uh, he, he was really being honest that it, it was relig religious doctrine that was influencing that position um, and I think you know that that belief should be respected and I have no problem with people 
personally objecting to, to law change because of their religious beliefs. Um, but I, as, as Mick said, I don't think it's acceptable that people can hide behind uh, much weaker arguments in order to make that case. You say that um, many religious people support assisted dying. Do you have any statistics on that? Yeah, so the largest poll um, that we've ever done on assisted dying that's ever been done of over 5,000 people uh, found that public support is at 84%. Uh, religious support is uh, just as high as that, uh, over 80%. Uh, disability support, that's often an argument that's put forward that uh, disabled people might be scared of a change in legislation, even though it wouldn't affect them unless there was uh, a terminal illness present. Uh, support amongst disabled people is also uh, over 80%. And these figures have been consistent for decades. You know, the public appetite for a change in the law is really unquestionable. Uh, and the, the problem that we've got is that that hasn't yet filtered through to, to MPs, but um, things are changing on that front too. What about groups with specialist knowledge, such as the Royal College of Physicians, the British Med Medical Association, or psychologists? Yes, yeah, so I mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury's intervention in, in 2015 when there was a bill in Parliament. Um, the opinion of medical organisations, such as the ones you've mentioned, was also key in leading MPs to vote against that bill. Uh, that has changed, though, in the last five years, primarily because those organisations have gone out to their members and carried out surveys on this issue and found that they don't actually have a mandate to oppose a change in the law. So those bodies have been forced to adopt more neutral positions. Um, so the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Nursing, Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Faculty of Clinical Oncologists, which represents cancer doctors, have all committed not to stand in the way of law change. Um, the British Medical Association, its survey results are due um, soon. So we'll be able to see from that exactly where doctors stand. Over, uh, over 29,000 doctors responded to that. So that will really give us an insight into where they are at the moment. But I think it's undeniable that there's there's been a shift. But I think it's also key to remember that in terms of groups that have specialist knowledge, the people who know most about this issue are dying people and their families. Um, which is why we argue in, in Last Rites that it's their voices that need to be brought into the centre of this debate. We need to hand the microphone over to them and listen less to doctors who obviously have an important role to play in the debate. And just a final question for both of you, um, Lloyd and Mick. In your experience, what has the pandemic revealed to us about our society's attitudes to death and in particular to the topic of assisted dying? Do you think the experience of the coronavirus has helped us as a society to grow up? The answer is I'd like to think that um, it's helped us to move on. Um, our attitude to death has been not spectacular, has it? Um, but it's come more, the issue is now more and more out in the open. And I think the evidence of certainly in the last five or 10 years has been that people have begun to shake off all those sort of uh, fears of death and begun to talk about it in a quite a different way. Things like, for example, uh, death cafes have cropped up here, there and everywhere, um, where people actually want to talk about the issues. And it's not just here. It's bubbling away all over the place, not just in England. You know, there are issues around um, the Isle of Man, Jersey and Guernsey around us. Scotland is, this is at very much to the fore. 
around uh, death, dying, assisted dying, and so on. And the central fundamental point here, which I think is that this is about freedom of choice. This is one of the last great barriers of choice uh, being exercised by individuals in the face and the teeth of opposition from the usual vested interests, I have to say. And this debate is going on across Europe, across uh, states in Australia, Tasmania is now launching something there. Uh, so it's an issue which is of its time. And the COVID thing, I think, will accelerate some of that thinking. Lloyd, would you agree? Yeah, I think Mick's completely right in terms of people are capable of having these conversations. I think we often underestimate dying people in in this country. I bring it back to the end of life culture. I think there's still a tendency for doctors maybe not to present opportunities to have conversations about people's wishes. And it's interesting that in jurisdictions that do have assisted dying laws, the end of life culture more broadly has benefited. People are more confident in raising the topic of death and dying. Uh, and there's much more acceptance that it's the, it's the quality of life that is, should be valued more over the quantity of life. Um, in terms of the, the pandemic, we argue in the book that what society has been through is comparable to what dying people endure every day. So that the shock of a diagnosis, the rapidly trying to adapt to a new way of life and then now moving forward into an uncertain future. So in a way, I think death and dying has become everybody's business. And the more we think about how we want our lives to end, I think the more we'll realize that the rules and the laws which govern that ending are completely out of date and, and no longer fit for purpose. Lloyd Riley and Mick Murray, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm joined now by Dr. Anthony Lempert. Um, Anthony is chair of the Secular Medical Forum of the NSS and a GP, um, and he's going to give us some comment from the secularist perspective on my interview with Mick and Lloyd. Um, Anthony, good morning. Good morning. Um, first of all, um, Mick and Lloyd were quite critical, I think, of, of doctors saying that they thought the medical profession was behind the times. And they were also talking quite a lot about um, the underhand influence of religion on both um, the BMA, the British Medical Association, and on um, public attitudes or, or the, the, the process of, of legislation of assisted dying. So perhaps could you start by telling us about, I mean, do you agree? Do you think there's a lot of underhand influence um, by religious groups or religious individuals on the resistance to assisted dying legislation? I think it's a really, uh, really valid point, um, both about the, the resistance within the medical profession, although I do believe that's changing um, to some degree, um, but certainly the, the underhand element. I think, firstly, I think it, it, you can't talk about the underhand element without actually talking about what, what we know already that is happening right in front of our eyes. Um, the, the fact is that religion is given a prominent place in our, in our society. We have bishops in the House of Lords who have influence debate. We have deference to religion. These pervade our society and influence uh, influence debates, uh, whether we like it or not. In terms of the underhand element, I think there is there's increasing evidence that um, a lot of the debates around assisted dying, um, if you listen to the language, over, particularly over the last 20 odd years, 
you'll hear a distinct shift. And the shift has gone from people overtly claiming that uh, life is uh, sacred and the sanctity of life is, must be uh, respected uh, and that it's God's will to, to, uh, to let us live and die as long as we do and not to interfere with it, to a much more framed um, uh, debate where people talk about uh, vulnerability and, and slippery slopes and all sorts of other issues and 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 uh, being able to alleviate suffering um, and that, and this is quite a deliberate ploy. I mean, there is actually people have written um, some religious people have actually written articles on it advising religious people not to use religious language and it's certainly something I've witnessed um, certainly at the BMA where I, I sit as a representative although I'm not speaking as a representative here. Um, and certainly in the debates, it's quite often you will find that, that that people will not use religious language when they are discussing it. I think I think it's important to recognise that this is not about a debate um, about you know, whether you're religious or not, because the majority of religious people are also in favour of assisted dying. Um, it's more a question of the tactics employed by religious bodies and the people who claim to represent those religious people. Um, which, of course, is as odd as, as, you know, as Lloyd rightly said, you know, over 80 percent of, of the population have consistently been in favour of assisted dying um, and, and a large portion of the of religious people. And yet the religious bodies themselves. Um, and and as, as Mick so you know, eloquently pointed out what the Pope said um, just just the other week where he condemned as, uh, assisted dying as evil. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's religious figureheads and um, influential people, say, in the BMA who happen to be religious rather than um, religious people in general. Yes. And, and will often use their religion and will use their position and sometimes will put themselves in that position deliberately uh, so that they can influence the debate. So you've been saying that, um, say, um, in, in the early 2000s, we may have had bishops in the House of Lords talking about the sanctity of light, life, but um, the, the debate, the framing of the debate has changed. And now um, people who are on the, who oppose assisted dying maybe speak in terms of the problems with assisted dying. Now, Mick and Lloyd were talking about the fear-mongering um, aspect, that they say it's a slippery slope. But you also mentioned um, the issue of um, suffering, uh, the alleviation of suffering. Um, and they would argue, the, the opponents of assisted dying would now say that it is possible to alleviate the suffering of people who are terminally ill sufficiently. Do you think that's a reasonable argument? I think it's wholly unreasonable. And I think anyone who's worked in palliative care, and obviously as a GP, I do personally, uh, but, but many relatives, most people have got experience of witnessing a relative or a friend die. And often often it's done very well. And you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking the care that's given, but it is frankly impossible to alleviate all forms of suffering for all people. Um, and pain is, is one element of it, but it's one that often gets focused on again and again when people say, oh, they want, you know, in countries where, where people are having an assisted death, people, opponents often say, oh, they weren't even in pain. Well, it's like, well, nausea, vomiting, psychological pain, um, the, the, you know, the, the terror of dying with certain conditions. These are all forms of suffering and not all of them are, are manageable by, by drugs or, or support or love. A lot of these people are deeply loved uh, and deeply supported. And, that's, and I think that's one of the most, most unpleasant aspects of, of the claims, when people say if only, if only these people had more love around them, they wouldn't want to die. I think, I think some people will suffer, they're surrounded with loved, loved ones who actually want them to live, um, and, they, and they actually think that actually they can't bear to live anymore. They want to live themselves, but they can't bear to live the way they are living. 
you have a particular interest in this issue, partly because you were the expert witness um, on the Tony Nicholson case in 2012. Um, and just to remind listeners, Tony Nicholson had locked-in syndrome. Um, so could you maybe tell us a bit about how that experience has shaped your um, um, support for the assisted dying legislation? Well, certainly. I mean, it was quite a new experience for me. Um, I, I became involved mainly through my role in the, in the Secular Medical Forum. Um, Tony was, was someone who, who was a very active, vibrant man. And, and I should say he gave permission. He wanted, he wanted his story to be, to be told. And he was, went very public at the time. Um, he woke up one morning literally only able to blink his eyes. And in times gone by, people may have thought that he, he that, uh, wasn't able to think or, 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 you know, or communicate. But fortunately, with modern technology, he was able to communicate with me, with everyone, not with me, with, with his wife. Uh, and eventually, he had an iBlink computer, which meant that he could have complete conversations. I, I met him a couple of times, for, you know, as part of the role as expert witness. And Tony expressed to me how his, his, his one abiding fear was that he didn't want to have to starve himself to death or dehydrate himself, because his only way of communicating was by iBlink. And if he became unconscious, um, you know, then he may, you know, he would no longer be able to communicate. Um, the reality is that um, he didn't want to die. He wasn't ready to die. He wanted the option of having it in his back pocket for the time when he could no longer bear uh, the suffering that he had on a daily basis. <clears throat> and what, what actually happened was that he lost his high court case in August 2012. Um, and seven uh, seven or eight days later he died because he had no longer he he, he took the only option that was a, open to him at that point and he he, he took no food or, or, or water at that time since that time and for me that was just a it was a terrible tragedy because talking to tony i have to say sitting in the in the room with him you know after being there half an hour i had forgotten that we were communicating through an iblink computer his brain was so sharp he was so vibrant so you know he wasn't in the slightest bit depressed he was miserable with his circumstances um, but it, but, uh, but some of the, some of these arguments keep coming out with opponents of assisted dying. They say, well, you know, these people are depressed, or these people are they, they just need to explore this, they just need to explore that. And, and the reality is that if anyone had gone through every single possible option open to him, Tony Tony certainly had, um, and, and I don't think anyone should have had to suffer what what he had to suffer. So basically, I mean, this from this perspective, the law is just inhumane because people um, it, it takes away patient autonomy um, and it prevents people who know very clearly what they want from doing what they what they need to do and there was no other option for um, Tony. Yes and patient autonomy is is, is widely regarded as, as, as probably the most fundamental medical ethic and if we if we think about it it's it's fairly obvious why we all want to make decisions that are right for us you know, I think going, going way back, you know, the, the important medical ethic was beneficence. So doctors did what's best for the patient. Well, that's all well and good, but but sometimes patients don't want what the doctor thinks is best. Um, and nowadays, it's really strongly recognised that patients should be intimately involved in all aspects of their care, and they're allowed to make decisions that are unwise, such as Jehovah's Witnesses who can refuse a blood transfusion. Precisely, precisely. If we if we believe that they've understood the question and have weighed it up and have come to their conclusion that they don't want a blood transfusion, even if that might save their life, then it's it's not my job as a doctor to to override their their opinion and their views, and it's their right to choose that particular 
course of action. And I think that should be extended to, to all aspects of, of our lives, including the end of life. So it seems like the end of life is a sort of strange except, exception to the general principle of patient autonomy. The NSS position is that um, the NSS is neither for nor against um, assisted dying legislation as, as such. It merely wants to ensure that the debate is not influenced inappropriately by religion. So just looking at um, the other uh, the position of opponents to assisted dying, I mean, I think one argument they make, which is not based on religion as such, is patient vulnerability. They would say, well, what about patients who are very vulnerable um, and they might be um, perhaps influenced by their relatives to take their own life when it wouldn't be appropriate them, for them to do so. Um, how strong is this argument? I think patient vulnerability is an extremely important point and one that must be discussed by both opponents and you know, by anyone who's discussing this debate. Um, the, the argument for those who are against assisted dying is often that uh, patients feel under pressure. They might feel under undue pressure both by relatives, but even even wider than that by society. You know, I, I don't think we can dismiss that argument. I think it's an important point to make that, um, you know, that, that, that some people might be swayed by that. I do think the vulnerability argument is way, way bigger than that, though. Um, on two fronts. The number one is that the most vulnerable person in this situation is the person who is so desperate um, with the state of their life and what's what you know what's going to come in their life that they are asking for an assisted death because the very fact they're asking for it tells me that it screens out the word vulnerability to, to suffering, if nothing else. And and the other question is the the vulnerability that exists in the current situation because the current law. Uh, and as both Lloyd and, and Mick said, it's, it's, a, it's a complete, it's a mess. It was described by the Falconer Commission in 2010 as inadequate and incoherent. And there's a reason for that, because currently it's legal to commit suicide, but it's illegal to assist someone to commit suicide. However, the only time the determination is made is after the patient has died, which means that there is no safeguard in place whatsoever for assessing someone um, who might be vulnerable to coercion, who might actually be amenable to further treatment if only they felt the door was open for them to come to their doctor and say, look, I'm wanting an assisted death. That doctor would not go, oh, yeah, that's fine. We'll just sign it here. What they would say is, what are the problems? What are the issues? We'd spend an enormous amount of time trying to work out how we might help. But also, at the end of the day, if we can't, if there was a law, we could then we could then set that process in motion. Well, currently, that's completely absent from the debate. Um, you know, so there will be, an, I, I, I suspect it's, it's a few people, but there will be a few vulnerable to an unscrupulous relative who then claims afterwards that they're acting out of love and compassion and in accordance uh, with their relative's wishes, which is what the DPP in 2010, uh, in response to the Debbie Purdy legal challenge, um, stated would be uh, mitigating factors, uh, whereas a doctor who assists someone to, to die would, be a, um, would go in the other direction, they'd be more likely to be prosecuted. So doctors, in a way, are, are particularly in a very difficult position um, because at the moment you can't assist someone at all who, who wants to die. And, and what, what is the situation now? Well, well, the GMC is very clear that um, if a patient comes to us asking for an assisted death, we must explain to them that it is a criminal offence. And uh, the GMC very kindly says that, that we may feel challenged in ensuring the patient's uh, don't feel abandoned. Well, well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, because quite a lot of patients 
you know, what we rely on, and certainly as a GP, is the doctor-patient relationship. And that that needs honesty on both parts. And if someone's coming to me saying they want to die, and all I can say to them is, you know, um, it's a criminal offence for me to help you. Of course, I'll discuss the other issues as well, but but they won't come to me in the first place um, because they know I can't do it. That's a barrier to communication. Um, and a lot of GPs are very frustrated by that. 2019, the Royal College of GPs did their most recent poll of GPs um, on the subject of assisted dying. Um, this followed the 2013 poll, which uh, had a very small number of respondents showing about two thirds of GPs were against a change in the law. Well, there's been a radical shift from uh, from that number to uh, there are now more GPs who are either in um, in favour of neutrality or permitting assisted dying than there are the 47% of GPs who are who remain opposed to assisted dying. Unfortunately, at the moment, the World College of GPs has decided to uh, stick with its current opposition, uh, which I understand is is facing a legal challenge at the moment. And why is that? I don't know the politics of the Royal College of GPs. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether there's um, religious influence. What I do know is that a lot of people who are against assisted dying, who are not religious, just say, well, I'm against it. I wouldn't take part in it, but you do what you want. Whereas a lot of the religious bodies say, well, I'm against it and I don't want anybody to do it because it's, it's, um, you know, it breaks my faith. And, and that's, that's one of the, 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 most, the biggest difficulties is that people can be poor or against personally, but, but why stop other people? If there was a law, it, would, it absolutely would protect anybody uh, from, from having assisted dying done to them, because that wouldn't be assisted dying, that would be murder. So the point you're making is that religious opponents to assisted dying um, are not content to just oppose it in their own case. They want to impose their view on everyone else. That's correct, yes. And they will often do it by using um, scare tactics and and giving misinformation. And as I said before, by framing it in a different way uh, so that it sounds plausible. Dr. Anthony Lempert, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Emma. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.